Hello and welcome everybody to the podcast on educational policy. I'm Ali and in this program we are discussing some questions in educational policy. I have joined Dr. Sindefin, PhD in educational psychology from McGill University, the current director general of Lester B. Pearson School Board and the former director of student services from 2005 to 2019. Hello, Cindy. Hello, Ali. Nice to be with you. Oh, that's great. Uh, as you mentioned in that introduction, I'm currently the Director General of the Lester B. Pearson School Board. So that is one of nine English-speaking school boards in the province of Quebec. Uh, in total, there are 72 school boards. And, uh, and so we begin educating students at the age of four. Uh, in our kindergarten program for four-year-olds. And then we take students all the way through to getting a high school diploma in grade 11. And then we also offer continuing education. And so that is either students who stop their studies and return at a later date to get their high school diploma, or students who want to go on and learn what we call a vocational trade. So people who want to be uh, working in the plumbing industry, uh, baking, uh, beauty care, healthcare, uh, they can study with us and do either an attestation program or a diploma program that will allow them access to the job market. So our school board has approximately 19,000 students who study from kindergarten through grade 11. And then we have another three to 4,000 students who at any given time are with us to either get credits to graduate or to do one of those uh, vocational trades. So in total, we have about 24, 25,000 students. Uh, and so we, we are a public uh, ed educational institution, and which means we're governed by the Education Act, and a number of uh, legislative requirements, procedures uh, that the government asks us to put in place. Uh, and then, you know, the school boards are all independent employers. So we all have uh, at, the, at the head of each school board, there is a director general, such as myself. So my role is to be sort of the chief executive officer to make sure that we're delivering the curriculum to students, that we're delivering the services they need to be successful, that we maintain the buildings, the grounds, all the spaces where learning takes place, uh, and that we comply with all the regulations needed for working with teachers, ensuring curriculum is delivered, testing students, making sure they meet the provincial standards. And um, so in order to do all of that, we have to make sure we comply with whatever legal requirements there are. Uh, and then there are a number of, um, uh, of things that we must do at the local level to make sure we're in compliance. So uh, my role is to be the chief executive officer, but there's a, a, an oversight uh, of the school board by a group of elected officials. They're known in, as different things in different provinces, but in Quebec, they're known as commissioners. And in the rest of Canada, they're referred to as trustees. So these are people that are elected to ensure that people like myself and all of the staff involved in education, that we are spending money appropriately, investing our funds wisely, uh, delivering services to students, and so that uh, group is known as the Council of Commissioners and their role really is a governance role and the way they govern is largely through policy and resolutions. So they will create policy that sort of descends 
from the uh, requirements of the Education Act, and they go beyond as well. And I can talk about some of those different policies that we have in our school board. And they're really meant to be guidelines, ways for us to organize our services, ways for us to deal with issues, uh, everything from how do you name a school to uh, ensuring you have services for students with disabilities. So that Council of Commissioners creates the policy uh, with input from the administrative staff, such as myself. And then we, uh, they create the policy and then it's our role to implement it and to be assessing its impact and to make sure that we're adhering to it the best that we can. And, uh, and so it's an ongoing dialogue between the Council of Commissioners and the administration and the rest of the staff. Okay, so that was a very comprehensive introduction actually. So uh, from my understanding, the Director General of a school board, in fact, is mostly kind of involved in the implementation of policies. And uh, are, are you also involved in development of policies? So it's a bit of both. Uh, strictly speaking, the development of policies is under the authority of the Council of Commissioners. But uh, certainly I can speak to our experience at Lester B. Pearson. We really work closely with the commissioners in creating the policy. So the way our school board is organized, and we're not unique, most of the English school boards uh, operate this way. Our Council of Commissioners uh, is a large group, but they have a number of standing committees, committees that meet regularly to talk about different issues. So for example, in our school board, um, we have a facilities committee that looks after the buildings, the grounds. We have a transportation advisory committee that looks at our busing services, how students get to and from school. Uh, there's a programs and services committee that is responsible for making sure we're delivering programs, the curriculum is in line, that we're spending you know, money on, on materials as they're needed. And there are other committees such as um, communications and innovation, where we look at our infrastructure, our technologies, how are we communicating with the public, what systems do we use to make sure everyone stays informed. So all of these committees meet pretty regularly. And when there's a time either to create or review or revise a policy, it gets tasked to one of these groups. And from there, there's often a little subgroup that forms that says, okay, we're going to be revising uh, our policy on the naming of a school, for example, that's a policy that right now we've just decided to take a look at. And so there are a few commissioners who meet with a few administrators to discuss what are the issues that need to be in the policy and then how to write it. So although technically the committee is chaired by a commissioner and they're responsible for voting on the policy, we act as advisors to say, you know, that's a good idea, but may not be realistic, or that's going against another policy we have, or it may not be following from the Educational Act, which is the act that governs public instruction. So we work together. It's very much a collaboration, but at the end of the day, it is the commissioners who write and adopt the policy. They vote on it officially and so forth. So uh, from your response, I can understand that you are very deeply involved with different sectors and possibly different stakeholders. And uh, as a policy designer or as a policy implementer, so I think your work involves uh, different activities in relation to research, analysis, and legislative drafting, and uh, possibly engagement of uh, stakeholders. Uh, from different perspectives. 
Um, I want to start from here. Uh, we know that policies in education systems represent values and interests and belief systems. With respect to the diversity and uh, multiplicity of education actors and stakeholders, do you think if an inclusive and effective representation of these multiple voices it is a challenge in the current policy climate? I think it's always a challenge when you have, as you referenced, multiple stakeholders because everyone comes to the table with a particular perspective. And so if a parent has uh, some concerns or a teacher or uh, a member of the community, it's important to sit down and, and so what you need is time and you also need a very adept chair who's able to manage the various perspectives and it's important it's absolutely essential to have those perspectives but it does take some management in order to organize and ensure everyone has a voice one of the things that's really important uh, when we're developing or revising policy at the school board is that although there's a small group tasked with doing the actual writing because you're writing a document it's very important to make sure that you're basing everything on, as you say, research, practice. And so there's often a piece where people will come and meet with us and share their experiences or share their perspectives. And we have to take all of that into consideration. And once there's a draft of the policy that's been designed, then we go out for consultation. And uh, that's one of the things I'm very proud of in our particular school board. The law requires that you consult on certain policies and it's very clear when you must and, and we certainly do that but I would say in our school board we just have a practice that every time we're developing or revising policy it's in our culture to consult and what that means is we put out the document and we invite our public at large to comment, our student groups, uh, the parents committee, uh, the governing boards, every school in Quebec has a governing board, uh, elementary, secondary, and in the adult sector. And so it's just part of our reflex that our secretary general, who is the one who makes sure all of these things are tracked and monitored, they will send out the policy to, in our case, we have 56 schools and centers. So all of those governing boards get it. Parents committee gets it. Uh, anyone in the public can comment on it. The unions and associations representing the employees, they all get to comment. And then those responses are all taken back and reviewed by the committee that's developing the policy. And then they get addressed. And sometimes they find their way into the policy. And sometimes they're not incorporated, but they're given due consideration. So it's a really interesting process, but it's lengthy. And that, that sometimes surprises people that to revise a policy could easily take over a year, depending on the scope of the policy. Yeah, that's very interesting that you uh, kind of brought it up uh, because policy developers believe in the democratic practice of you know listening to multiple voices. However, the argument is that there is not enough probably capacity to agree with everyone. Uh, to what extent do you think this inhibits or facilitates productive educational system? Well, I do think the way our systems are organized, that there is a very important aspect of democracy in public education because the whole system exists for the public good. And so the public needs to have a voice. Uh, it's an interesting time to be living in Quebec because 
Um, I'm sure you're aware in the course of your studies and just reading the news that, you know, about just over two years ago, the government decided to abolish democratically elected school boards to transform them into school service centers. So our French counterparts are living that where it's not a, a democratic election that puts the people on the board of directors, rather it's a process by which people are selected for their expertise. That, that's one way of doing things. We in the English system are still under the old model just because there's a legislative challenge to the implementation of Bill 40. So we still have commissioners who are elected by people in the public who vote for them and put their, you know, make their vote. And, and we have a chair that's elected from across our territory. So in many ways, the democracy aspect is built in, it's baked into the foundation. But again, you, even when you're an elected official, which I'm not, but I can imagine when you're an elected official, it's a constant challenge to make sure you're speaking for your constituents or the people that elected you. And to do that, you need to be able to check in with them. So I think those consultations, you know, before a policy becomes adopted is so important because it's that final check-in. And I think the challenge, as I say, is to, to determine, well, how many people do you solicit input from? Uh, how do you do that? Is it, it's very easy now electronically, we, we send things to people and just invite a response. But, you know, sometimes, as you referenced, sometimes it's hard to convey very complex subject matter in a policy and just email it and say, what do you think? And so there have been times where, depending on the size and the scope of the policy, we might have a meeting to explain it, or we might uh, do a question and answer sort of uh, document to say, this is why this is in the policy, this is why this aspect isn't. Because people do invest time to give feedback and sometimes they're disappointed, but we have, sometimes have to point out, well, the reason this particular issue or aspect didn't make it into our policy is because it's not in line with the government's strategic plan or their legislation. So it's always, it, it's a lot of um, circling back and it's a very iterative process that you have to develop something, show it to the stakeholders, ask them for their input, refine it. And so it's, it's an ongoing process. And for some people it can be quite complex, but I, I think uh, we've developed a fairly good system uh, for consulting with our public. And like I say, the technological means are there now that we can invite people to look at a document online, give us feedback online and communicate with people. And now with video technology, we can hold meetings and discuss things. And that's how those committees that develop the policy, that's how they work, either in-person meetings or now more and more we're doing them online just because of the pandemic. But there's a good place to have these meetings um, and invite guests. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we recently, we've been um, in a period where we, we needed to look at uh, a number of years ago, we revised our special needs policy. So the law requires us to have a policy on services for students with disabilities. And that committee met for over a year 
and really worked hard, but there were times they needed to consult people before the final product went out. So we did invite representatives from the teachers union to meet with us. We did invite people from the group of professionals that service these students to meet with us. And that helped us in developing the policy. So it's not just a static process where you ask people for input at the end. There's ways that you can incorporate voice and perspective as you're developing it. I think we still have a way to go. I think one of the areas where we could do a better job when we're thinking about stakeholders is to find better ways to involve our students and get their voice. Yeah, yeah. that was very interesting, actually. Um, education is a very complex activity. And uh, so based on experience, we can kind of understand that there are a lot of invisible things in classes or in schools which are going on or which have even been started years ago because uh, probably there hasn't been a very dynamic mechanism for understanding these uh, kind of silent voices. Uh, so I think these changes that you have just explained can be a great means for visibilizing these silent voices. Just in line with what you illustrated, the way that schools are moving on and the policy landscape is moving toward a progressive uh, education system. Uh, so, and it is interesting that in the recent policy reforms and documents, we have seen such a progressive education mostly as a tendency toward reframing the language of policymaking. You know, using some words like shared responsibility, shared decision making, educational excellence, self-regulation, you know, capacity building of students and the other uh, developmental concepts like dignity and self-esteem. However, the fact is that schooling takes place in an accountability context, day-to-day -day pressures of school navigation and the ecology of national and international forces which surround education. So from this perspective, to what extent do you think schools provide satisfactory support and resources to achieve these policy aspirations? That is a great question and it is something we wrestle with all the time. Uh, you mentioned a lot of keywords that are actually very timely and, and are almost buzzwords in the field. Uh, and that, I think, is always the push and pull of policymakers, that you want policy that will drive practice and have a positive impact. At the same time, you don't want it to be so prescriptive that it doesn't allow for local decision-making, analysis of the situation, understanding context. Uh, and we see that uh, in so many different ways. Uh, I'll give you, you know, a good example is one of the policies that we have at the school board uh, is something that we call the green policy. And it's really, it reflects the environmental preoccupations and concerns that I think all human beings have at the present time. But it was created a number of years ago to say, in recognition of the fact that we're an educational institution, uh, we need to have a policy that speaks to the need to protect the environments in which we're learning, but in the bigger scope, you know, how the world is, is evolving or, or, or not because of, you know, increasing climate change and pollution and so forth. So it's a policy that has a number of, of values around respect for earth, respect for the environment, 
but it's also sometimes difficult to implement because we're living in a framework where our buildings are perhaps in some cases very old and have been refurbished and re-updated, but they may have been built at a time where there wasn't uh, perhaps the technology to have climate controlled rooms or to have, um, you know, no asbestos in the building. And so it's a constant challenge to say, well, we have a policy that wants to move us in a certain direction, but we don't always have the means to do it. And uh, some of that is financial. Some of that may be just the human capital involved. And, and, you know, so a very good example, very much related to the context in which we're currently in, um, you know, before the pandemic, just before the pandemic started, one of our high schools was experimenting with, um, we had moved away from using plastics and styrofoam in our cafeterias, uh, but, and we had, some schools were experimenting with uh, biodegradable, compostable um, forks and spoons and plates. And then there were some concerns about, well, is that the most eco-friendly? And so we actually had a high school that uh, just before the pandemic started was experimenting with, let's buy glass dishware and and wash it. And and so, you know, that that was the progression we were path we were on, only to when COVID arrived, suddenly there was this pressure, everything had to be disposable again because of safety concerns. So you couldn't bring your refillable coffee mug to the cafeteria anymore. You had to get the, the coffee cup provided by the cafeteria provider. Um, you know, even wearing masks. Originally, the government told us, you know, we encourage you to recycle them, but they didn't provide any additional funding to do that. So it would have come at the cost of something else in our system. And so we always have to weigh what government wants us to do in terms of certain production standards and the financing they give us to do it. And schools, as you say, want to be progressive. We want to attend to the student voice and the concerns they express about we need to take care of our planet. So we need to not produce so much garbage. We need to reduce and recycle and, and not have, um, you know, another example is, you know, there were some people saying we need to just move to a paperless environment, except that when we do our government exams at the end of the year, their paper. So it, it's that push and pull of there are things we would like to do, things we strive to do, and there are limitations just because of the way we're structured or the way we're funded. And that is, I would say, probably the most uh, intense part of when we're discussing a policy. People want to know how are you going to Im- Im- measure the impact? How are you going to evaluate the, the degree to which you're implementing it the way it was designed? And we have to explain, well, when you have 56 different schools and centers, they may implement things slightly differently, or they may be limited from doing things, um, you know, in the way that perhaps some policy makers had. had. And I think that's the value of revising policy. And that's why I, I very much appreciate that no policy is static. Every policy evolves as the times evolve. And so, for example, when we did our... Uh, we recently re- revised our tobacco, drugs, and alcohol policy. We had to take into account that the legalization of cannabis has changed some things. Uh, the fact that students uh, may now be vaping, um, employees may be consuming medication 
before they come to work. And so it, the situation evolves and you have to change your language in the policy or your practices in the policy. Um, you know, we're as much a service provider in education as we are an employer. So we need to have policies that also look at the well-being of our employees, that respect the labor laws, that respect health and social service laws. So it's actually much broader than just the Education Act. It's, it's all these laws that come into play when you're managing, uh, you know, in our case, we have about 5,000 employees. So we need policies that guide their work and their behavior and their, the expectations for them as much as the policies that encourage student achievement uh, and student success. Okay, that was a kind of a great perspective, I guess, because you kind of address the idea of education, not as a professional activity, but as a multi-professional activity, I guess the way that you put social services in picture, health services, social welfare, and other aspects which are very important in education. However, uh, I want to specifically ask this question because you come from a psychology background. Uh, when I was looking at some policy documents, I came across with some terminologies which are very important, you know, like the idea of shared responsibility, shared decision-making in school, specifically when it comes to the intersectionality which uh, comes into being between different and multiple stakeholders. So the question is here that when we express them in our policy documents, like the idea of shared responsibility, do you think that there's uneasy silence in the policy documents that what they exactly mean? Or what is the nature of this shared responsibility. So is it right this that when we talk about shared responsibility or sh what does shared mean and to what extent it needs sharing the power and authority of a school to different stakeholders? Do you think that uh, a policy document as a at least as a textual intervention in a school practice needs to be more explicit and transparent about what they mean, specifically in the daily pressures of schooling? Well, certainly when you're looking at a policy, I think, I think they vary in terms of um, breadth and depth. And, and so in our school board, we tend to have good or bad, we tend to have a, a tradition of creating policies that are quite lengthy. And I think part of the reason is to get at some of that tension you're speaking to, that it's really important if you're going to have a policy that you define the terms. And so you may need to define with a glossary to say, this is what we mean when we talk about, um, you know, in the case of our tobacco, drug and alcohol policy, like substances and to define it. and. You know, I, I think there's always that danger that if you're too brief, it gives too much latitude and then people say you're not following the policy, but if the policy isn't very specific, you could put a lot of things under the umbrella of, well, I'm following the policy. The policy says keep students safe. The other extreme, though, would be to have it be too prescriptive. Um, and have it be too too much like a procedure, and then you remove that autonomy. You know, the the at the heart of it in education, um, it it's also very important, uh, and all of our all of our principals understand this because they study this when they do their master's degree. Is that educational policy is really important from the principal's perspective because in most cases, when the law is specific. The duties and responsibilities, duties and responsibilities are those of the principal. So they are responsible for implementing policy 
uh, and making sure they respect and are in compliance with not only the policy, but the directives that come from the school board in response to, you know, to flesh out the policy. So it's very, very important that principals have that understanding. And at the same time, it's very important for there to be a level of subsidiarity and understanding that, you know, even something, again, um, sounds simple to say we have a policy against bullying there's a law actually in quebec against bullying and violence but for the principal to be able to go in and say this was a situation of bullying or this was a conflict between students or this was a disagreement like that takes a lot of judgment finesse and so it's the danger is if your policy is too prescriptive there can't be an explanation and i'll give you a, a very realistic example but uh, because it's happened in school systems where I've worked that for instance you know if you have a policy that says uh, anytime uh, a student uh, misbehaves they must be suspended for this many days yeah it's you know you have to take into account the situation and we've had situations where students by virtue of their special need by virtue of their disability they perhaps lost control or did something that was a manifestation of their disability but was not intended to hurt someone that's quite different than if upon investigation the principal determines no this student really did want to cause harm and was trying to bully and so all of these things require nuances and understandings of the situation uh, and and obviously, if they involve students, which most of the time they do, you have to have the developmental understanding of why this happened. And so you cannot have a series of sanctions that are the same for a kindergarten student as a grade 11 student or sanctions for misbehavior that apply to staff in the same way as students. So, yes, there's this always this concern that, you know, although the policies are written and, and people have a, a voice in how they're developed, at the end of the day, there's an authority figure who's charged with making sure those policies get followed. And we do see that sometimes. It's an interesting discussion, you know, with students. Uh, right now, we're, we're going through, I think the world is, is going through a period of self-examination where we're trying to understand the degree to which our policies may reflect systemic blind spots, even biases. And and so I know in our school board, we're taking a look at, do our policies disadvantage students who may be marginalized by virtue of race, religion, sexuality, because perhaps they were written by a group that didn't have that lens. And if the policies are not serving those students' needs, then we're, we're creating a situation of greater inequity. And, and that's something our Council of Commissioners is very concerned about how do we ensure equity, diversity, inclusivity are reflected in our policies. And I don't think there's an easy answer to that. It requires people taking, putting on different lenses. And to do that, you have to go to some of those communities and say, does our policy discriminate against you? Does our policy serve as a barrier instead of a facilitator of success? What you say is that at the level of policy development or policy designing, uh, we are not going to be very prescriptive to kind of a leave a think leave a thinking space or uh, leave a degree of latitude for leadership agency which can 
be deeply contextually embedded. Schooling, in fact, is about creating a balance between the academic success of students and link it to the bigger picture of human development, you know. So the ideas of like when we say dignity of students, self-esteem, capacity building and self-regulation that we have in mind. So to what extent policy is creating a balance, you know, between the smaller picture, which is academic success of students, and the bigger picture that the policies themselves are using these words. The point is that when we create this latitude for schooling, uh, it seems that the attention of leaders and school teachers is being pulled toward one extreme rather than considering both sides of this continuum. Do you agree with such an idea? Hmm, I don't know. It's a very good question. I'd have to to really reflect on it. But I, I do think you're right to point out that certainly when we look at the history of, of public education, education was created with certain expectations and goals. And we have to remember that over 100 years ago, the world was a very different place in the sense of we were very much an industrialized society. And this idea that education would be available to all was the noble value. You've talked about values. But as time has evolved, we've realized some of the ways in which we set up these schools didn't allow all students to succeed. And there were certain expectations, and I think those have evolved to say education is far more than putting actions in place that only result in educational success. There's been a lot, and that's where I think the research has been very helpful in looking at child development or even sociology to to realize that it's not just education is not sharing of knowledge and students just receiving it as like a receptacle so it's not a teacher pushing out curriculum students receiving it it's it's a much more interactive and dynamic process and in fact we're now seeing that education is not even looking only at the academic or cognitive profile, it's the whole learner, it's the whole child. And so by definition, then we have to start thinking about, well, is this student um, able to succeed because they have um, enough food and uh, are they, uh, they may be learning well using technology, but there may be, and we're certainly seeing it at this point in time, you know, we recently created an appropriate use of digital technology, or actually we updated it. We've always had a digital technology policy, but we are seeing that, you know, students are using social media for good sometimes, many times, but also there's a there's a danger there. And so we need to have policy that addresses some of that because these are not just brains. These are brains that are within bodies and bodies that are interacting with each other. And so sometimes it, it, I think it can be a little overwhelming. I know it is overwhelming for principals and teachers because now there's so many aspects to keep in mind, you know. And I think that's why certainly when I look at our, um, our school board, we have a number of policies that they're not required by law. Some are. Very specific things must be in policy. But we've made a decision as a community through our Council of Commissioners to create additional policies to get at some of those issues. So for example, we have a food and nutrition policy, uh, use of digital technology policy, a safe and care in school policy. None of that is required, but it's helpful to, 
further organize the work of schools. And so I think as the, as the goals of school have changed, it's now about creating citizens of tomorrow, about creating, you know, um, learners that are successful in many spheres of life, looking at the whole development of the child and even the family unit where they come from. That means you have to have, you know, even your definition of what is a family today, right? It used to be it was mother, father. Now it can be same-sex parents, can be grandparents, it can be aunts, uncles, maybe a, an auntie, a friend of the family. And schools are trying to adjust to those realities. And, and so the challenge is always having policy that allows for those changes to happen without being so prescriptive that you say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, we're only allowed to, you know, deal with this this situation if we talk to the mother. And there may be situations where, yes, the legal status of a parent is important, but other times if we're trying to solve a problem, we need to know who's important in that child's life. And if it's their older, bigger brother who can come and help us mediate, then we're gonna call them in. But you can't put all of those contingencies necessarily in a policy. So you try. So I think the policies, I always see them as umbrellas that kind of, you know, house things or, or, or allow us to talk about them in a coherent way. But then the policies have to also be further fleshed out with procedures or directives. And so that we can say to people, um, like, for instance, we have a safe and caring school policy that says, you know, it's our role to welcome all students into the school. So that it's a general statement. But then we've also created a set of guidelines on how to welcome a student who may be going through transgender transitions so that we say for that student, it is important to use the pronouns of their choice. It is important to involve the parents. Maybe we have to get the medical community involved if the child's going through hormonal transitions or surgical procedures because we need to be better informed about what that child is living in order to keep them safe and the self-esteem and all of those things that we know are important. So it is, it's actually very complex, like an onion, you keep peeling, peeling. So the policy starts, but then you have to back it up with procedures or directives that say, this is how you implement the policy, because it's easy to say we all want students to be safe or we all want to respect different cultures, but you also have to build that capacity, feed people with procedures or professional training. And, and that's where I see a lot of schools and school boards going in, in recent times because, because to build capacity, you have to put tools in the hands of people that are dealing with the students every day. The policies come to life in the schools through yeah. the teachers, the staff and the principals. So you have to be able to build their capacity to say, this is what, for example, bullying looks like, this is how you deal with it. But that doesn't have to be embedded in policy because again, policy is so overarching and takes a long time to change, but you can adapt your procedures much quicker in many cases. Okay. Yeah, actually, it's very good that you pointed it out that the question of policy is not just a question of agency and freedom. It's also the question of constraint standards and expectations that it places on schools. So it is kind of beyond the question of uh, agency or constraint in school. It's a kind of agency and constraint that how we can develop policies that can address issues at school that can take both sides together. I think it kind of connects us to the one of the major and grave concerns of education. You know, we know that teachers are the biggest influence on students' lives in classrooms. 
Many teachers believe that policies constrain their creativity and sense of agency in the classroom, which in turn uh, inhibits the students' uh, favorable learning, powerful learning in classrooms. And uh, on a more basic level, we know that policies set the standards, set, expe set expectations, but the question is, to what extent teacher agency is important in the current policy climate? And what can we do to bring agency in a constrained world of policy? Well, I think this is where in education we have to be very mindful that making generalized statements is helpful to have a, dis a discussion like we're having today, but it's also important to be very mindful of the jurisdictions that uh, govern education. So in Canada, as you know, education is a provincial power and and so each province governs that a little bit differently and I, I can only speak to the Quebec context that's yeah. really where in Canada I've spent my career working uh, so what I can say is certainly from uh, a perspective within Quebec there's huge uh, respect and acknowledgement that uh, the professional judgment of teachers is very very important so for example, we, we do have a policy on evaluation of learning, and in that policy, it talks about, you know, the teacher is the one responsible for the child, ensuring their education, providing services, asking for additional help if additional services are needed. And at the end of the day, that child is in their care, and they have a duty to respond to those needs, but also to evaluate the progress that the child is making. And so that's a very big responsibility. And in order to allow the teachers to be able to execute that, they have to be given latitude and, and it has to be acknowledged that they do have professional judgment. They, in many cases, most of our, all of our teachers have a, a bachelor's of education. Many have a master's of education. They have practical experience that informs how they're doing. And so we have to tread very lightly. And that's where, you know, policy has to always sort of leave room for, again, that individual judgment. And I think in Quebec anyway, there's a big recognition um, that teachers have a lot of authority uh, and exercise that authority. And we, as ed administrators who support them, give them the tools they need to build on that authority, to build on that expertise and professional judgment, but also to supervise it because the, the counterweight, if you will, is that parents will say too much freedom, too much, like perhaps, you know, for example, a good example is teachers in Quebec are responsible for choosing the materials with which they, they want to teach. So the curriculum is set, but a teacher could decide to study this novel over that novel. It's not that prescribed. But you could have a parent, and we have had some who say, I don't want my child reading that book, or I don't want my child doing sex education in the biology course in grade nine. I would rather they do something else. And so it's this, you know, that's the, the difficulty with policy is you want to give enough latitude and recognize that in education, you have a lot of very skilled and qualified, intelligent people trying to deliver curriculum and engage in a teaching and learning situation. At the same time, it there are constraints sometimes by what the government imposes or by what the school board expects. And so it is it is a delicate balance. I, I think, uh, and again, you have to look at where where the uh, 
the specific context at hand. And certainly my understanding, looking at some of the social media platforms that I can see that, you know, if we look south of the border, there are certainly a lot of teachers who feel their wings are quite clipped and they're quite constrained in what they can and can't teach. So I think you have to look at the context where the, the education system finds itself because yeah. some jurisdictions are a little have a little more latitude, others are a lot more prescriptive. I think in Quebec, because we have a competency-based curriculum, it's really about skill development and that teachers have a lot of latitude to organize activities, plan lessons, and execute activities that allow for that skill development to take place. There are other places where the curriculum is much more prescribed and much more, instead of it being co-constructed between learner and student, it's much more deliver facts and, and uh, more didactic. So I think Quebec is a bit unique in that there is a little more flexibility, but you raise a good point in terms of that push and pull between how much latitude do teachers and principals have. Yeah, actually, this perspective that you have built upon in our discussion is widely understood concept of policy. The question is, what should uh, the locus of decision and action be for teachers and leaders if they believe that policies uh, and directives can be limiting mm. in students' learning, or it can also be a violation of their professionalism? Well, I think you have to have those open forums for dialogue and discussion. So when I mentioned earlier that when we go out for policy review, we consult. Um, I neglected to, to mention we have something that's in place in our in our school board, and it's probably in place in most others as well. That you know, when commissioners are revising policy, we're we're giving input on it. That last step before it goes to the final vote of the council of commissioners, we actually have a group of principals and administrators that are tasked with read this as an educational leader because we need to know if there are things that will restrict or inhibit you or prevent you from doing your job. And so I'm not saying it's foolproof, but there is a place for people to say, mm, I think this is too restrictive or I think this is maybe too vague. And so we, we do have a small space to do that. But I would say outside of that, um, you know, there are, there are the way education is organized there are people to go to to say this is how i'm reading the policy or this is how i'm implementing it am i doing that the right way and it could be anything as informal as talking to a colleague to get a better sense it could be calling you know someone at the school board all the way to you know we do have a legal team of lawyers who help us interpret things and help us when we're writing the policy to be sure we're using clear language and then we're trying to be as specific as we can. But if there's ever an interpretation issue that there's people to talk with to say, am I not understanding this policy correctly? And then obviously there comes a time, as I say, all policies have a shelf life. Um, we typically look at, a, we have about a six to eight year cycle of our policies. So every seven years on average, I would say, it's at least put before people and say, and we have the discussion, do we need to revise this? Does it still hold water? Is it still guiding us, setting the expectations? Or is it out of date? Is it obsolete? Or is it unnecessary? Um, I've never seen it be unnecessary to the point where we get rid of a policy, but we have revised many of them um, to reflect some changes that people said, mm, we didn't get it right the first time, or contexts have changed, like digital technology is a good example. When we wrote our policy, 
uh, originally, I mean, it sounds quaint to think, but for example, we were not at one point in time, we had a freeze that we could not go to the outside internet and look at YouTube and all those, because it was seen as there's too much out there and that's not what, you know, there, there aren't enough firewalls and filters. What if students download inappropriate content? But then we had situations developing where schools were saying, but we created a video, we want to load it on YouTube, but how can the school board not allow us to access the internet in that way? So we had to revise it um, and, and, you know, find uh, ways of, again, balancing what parents say, you must protect my child while they're at school from seeing things versus, but education uses technology now as a driver for learning. And how can we just say, we're not going to allow students to ever go on Google. In fact, now we use the Google platform, we use the Google suite of applications. So it's interesting to see how far you come in less than 20 years that some things were, were just not accessible to, they're now essential for our learning. Yeah. You know, uh, you kind of, um, are, your examples are very close to the realities of school, like the ideas um, about uh, access of students to the internet, inappropriate contents. Uh, it kind of reminds us that the idea of education as a globally positive activity, you know, it is taken for granted that education is always good. However, we know that bad things happen in education, bad things happen in leadership. Even all types of learning and teaching are not inherently good. So the whole idea of education is deeply embedded and nested in the moral purpose of education. So uh, that was actually my question that to what extent can we be aware of such a uh, behaviors which happen in schools or some attitudes which exist in school? Sometimes they are uh, willingly or unwillingly caused by the consequences of policy, not just one specific policy, the, the way they intersectionally relate and they create circumstances in which uh, these, uh, let's say, um, no, I don't want to say immoral, but when we take children into perspective, we will see that things uh, appear differently. So, you know, we have heard that sometimes in education, these are some new vocabulary which are emerging, like uh, keeping a low profile in school, flying below radar, and uh, a kind of subversive strategies that you know teachers and leaders develop in the course of school life. These kind of indicate that policies and realities might have a kind of a distance right now. To what extent, you know, a teacher who has built a stock in such a situation or even a leader, you know, we, we have sometimes contradictions of values mm -hmm. that exist between, you know, what government expects from the policy and implementation and how teachers have been educated in their own programs with values they have made nurtured in the course of time. So uh, is there anything that you can see in between so it can be helpful in such a situation? Mm. You raise a very good point. You state it very well. I think one of the only things you can do is try to find that common ground and circle back to something, and you referenced it earlier, circle back to what are the commonly held values that we can agree on, and then discuss how perhaps we're not seeing it in the same way. So, for example, 
in our school board, we have a set of you know values that drive our work, and our, our mission is excellence of students. And they develop their full potential. That's a very broad statement, but it's rooted in values like respect, inclusion, integrity, innovation, uh, the community being a part of it. Again, that's easy to say. Like, what is respect? What is respectful to me may not be the same as respectful to you, and that that's where you see some of that, yeah. um, you know, difficulty where a teacher will say, "I felt very." disrespected by a student and yet our policy says we can't um, just expel a student for misbehavior when I think they should be expelled and we say well no we have a process by which the principal will create a sanction and if the sanctions are you know are the behavior severe enough yes a student could be transferred but that will be you know perhaps a decision made by the council of commissioners or by the director general of the school board not the teacher so yeah it's difficult i think the only thing you can do is try to come back to defining what those values look like sound like feel like because often at the heart of it it's a violation of a value that in your referring to you know there are some very big examples of things that you know, we can all look to, you know, just the whole question of residential schools is yeah. a very good example yeah, exactly. that, you know, there were policies in place, but they were not helping students. They helped maintain a certain system of education for the system's sake, designed by the adults, but they were certainly harmful to the students that were attending those schools. So that's always the danger that, yes, just because you say you have a policy, it has to be evaluated and it has to be critiqued. That's why I think it's so important to involve stakeholders because, and we do hear from students that say, I think that code of conduct is too restrictive. I think this policy is out of date. And we have to listen to that. We can't just throw it out as well. That's their perspective, but that's, they're the reason we're in the business of education. So you have to listen to student voice. I think student voice has, has been a neglected part of edu the educational discourse. If you, again, looking back historically, you know, the people who were educated, those people with privilege set the policy. And then over time there was recognition, no, we need to bring parents into the conversation. Parents have an important voice. They should be involved in policy making. And they're now part of our council of commissioners. They're part of our, they, they're the majority in, the, in our governing board structure. And so the, the, you know, and the community have a voice, but where are the students in the voice? And I think, you know, so we have to always have those conversations about what values are these policies built on? Like the value of inclusion is a big one. It's always been a big one in our school board, but I would say for many years, we limited the conversation frame to, well, do we include students with disabilities? Which is very noble, very important. Of course. But inclusion can mean many different things. Do we include you know, are we meaningfully creating a space of belonging for students who are different in other ways, socioeconomically, racially, ethnically? Like, we can't only look at inclusion from the lens of it's about an able, disabled lens. There's so many other lenses to look at it. And I think that was a blind spot for a long time. It was, well, we're educators. We welcome everyone. Okay, but does the policy really allow that to happen? Are our students as successful as they can be? So I, I think you have to come back to what does that value of inclusion mean? Does it mean all students are invited into the school? That's not setting up a condition for success. You need to create conditions. If that student is hungry, 
we need to feed that student. If that student doesn't have winter clothes, we need to find a way to get them. If that student is sick and parents don't have access to a doctor, if the parents don't speak English and so we don't know what's going on in the student, but we can't just say, well, we're here, we welcome the student. We have to, and that's difficult. I'm saying it as though it's simple, yeah. but you're looking at in schools of two, five, eight hundred students, that's a big job for principals and teachers to try to individualize and personalize everything they do to meet the needs of that child. But that's what we have to do. That's the moral imperative. We're trying to help every child learn and grow, not just the ones who come to school with everything they need or are ready to be in the system we set up. Yeah. I'm a big believer we have to change the system to meet the needs of where the children are. Yeah, exactly. So it's a great step toward you know, kind of providing uh, equitable education to all students, kind of diminishing the gaps which exist socioeconomically between the students. So yeah, that's great to hear that. And I really uh, kind of make it make a reference to what you earlier mentioned about that in your school board, you about like uh, every seven years or every five years, you try to make revisions in policies and it just connected to what you just said, you know, about listening to stakeholders because they provide you with valuable input about what your next step is going to be. It kind of reminds me of the idea of reform in policy or reform in practice. You know, talking about educational reform mainly happens against the backdrop of policy consequences or policy effects. So in your perspective, at what point does it, you think, become apparent that we need a kind of reform in a policy or in educational landscape generally? Well, I guess if there are recurring indicators that the existing policy isn't having the impact we want or it's no longer in sync with those values, then I think we have to take a look at it. And I, and I would say that's a very honest conversation. Like I, I referenced before that, you know, we're taking a look at all of our policies to say, is are they really equitable? Are they really acknowledging diversity? Um, because if they're not, then we have to change them. And so I think, I don't think there's any simple answer. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe you and I are talking about macro, micro, or I still look very micro, but there are, you know, times yeah. where there's a macro policy change, um, those tend to come more from the government. Like if they say to us, like right now, uh, school success is a very big priority in Quebec. For the last at least 10 to 15 years, there's been a, a an acknowledgement that Quebec graduation success rate is not where it needs to be relative to other places in the world. We need to do a better job. So that's driving a lot of those policies to say we need to have better systems, better services that meet those needs. Um, I accept that as a need to, re re you know, we need to revise perhaps what we're doing on, the, on that macro societal level. But then when I look at our specific context in our school board, our data show a very different uh, situation in that our students, like we look at our graduation success rates that after seven years of study, if students need a little extra time, they can have as many, you know, the government tracks it up to seven years, you know, 90% of our students graduate. So for us, the issue isn't how to get, well, we would like to see all of our students graduate, but our question is, what is it about those 10% who are not successful? 
and they probably have different needs than a school district where they're graduating 50% and your and your means to get there will be different. We agree on that major you know, need to reform the system to say we need to have more students be successful. Yeah. But... So, uh, you know, in, in one part of your speaking, you kind of pointed out that thinking, starting to think differently about education, about teaching and learning is kind of nested in what the government actually, what the government is um, mandating or putting into process of legislation, I guess. So, yeah, the understanding educational change as a systemic step is uh, really important. Of course, this, this the question that I pose is not really at macro level. You can also, if there's an example at micro level, you know, the, the indicators that kind of tell you and the committee that you have that when it is the appropriate time to make a change in education to to that is the right time for a reform uh, is there something like an indicator or you just look at the problems and um, we have you know come uh, emerging issues in school areas and teachers and students and then you start revision of the policies is, is it something like that or uh, yeah it's it's hard to, to think about it because exactly. I'm in, in the system. I, I wouldn't yeah. say we take a look at one, one indicator, but I think it's a series of indications and it may be comments from students. It may be uh, the impact of research. Like what is the educational research telling us? Yeah. Uh, so for example, um, in Quebec, we do not necessarily have it embedded in any legislation or policy that mental health is an important aspect to education. But we know from our students, and certainly living the last two years in the pandemic, mental health concerns are very important. And so we have a safe and caring school policy, and we're thinking mm, we may need to go and revise it and reflect the fact that it's not just about physical safety at school, it's also how the student perceives themselves to be. So. You know, in the past, we used to think safety was we make sure there's no ice in front of the school to fall or that the uh, windows open and close so that it's not too cold or too hot. But there's a whole aspect of psychological safety that the research tells us is important because if students don't feel safe and if they're feeling threatened or if they're traumatized, they can't learn as effectively. So that means we need to give consideration to that and say, how are we creating climates within schools, that school culture piece, the 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 way a group interacts in a classroom, maybe we need to put that somewhere, and that somewhere could be a policy, but it could also be in procedures, but it's also probably in the professional development that we give our teachers to say, you do need to be aware of your student's psychological health. You need to be aware of your own psychological health as an educator, because yeah, there's now research that shows if teachers are stressed, they pass their stress on to their students. So. There's so much to be mindful of. And so when you start looking at research, you go, mm, our policies are not perhaps treating this issue the way it needs to be treated. Yeah. So it's not one indicator that would un, you know, unleash a policy review. It's sort of ongoing conversations, looking at what is going around. Um, sometimes, you know, just talking with other school boards to say, do you have a policy on this? And oh. they say, oh, we don't. Do you? Yes, we do. And, you know okay it's interesting yeah um yeah just to connect it to what you said the reason that i asked this question the, the idea of professional development of teachers that you just raised 
Schools have their own default culture, a set of inert ideas that may not be useful, but they exist. I have been in contact with a couple of teachers and the idea of reform, you know, they worry about the idea of reform is that it involves a process of rethinking what we already know, repurposing, rethinking, revisiting our own practices and beliefs about education. And this is what really makes it challenging. So what do you think a policy reform needs to address to be attractive, to, to receive attention in an institutional context for teachers and for students, specifically in the, you know, the daily pressures of schooling? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there has to be work done to, to really show the relevance of the policy. That, again, to say you know, all of these things are developed with the goal of trying to help facilitate teaching and learning. So if it's not obvious, we need to make it more explicit and make it more relevant. So I know, for example, when we, a number of years ago, we revised our special needs policy, it was very important, at the time I was the director of student services, it was very important for me to sit with the principals and and dissect the policy and say, here's why we're saying this, because it allows us to do that, or here's why we're saying not to do this, because it violates this you know idea we have about students having access to you know education and inclusion and all that so it was about like trying to make it relevant so i guess the challenge and you're speaking to that's probably where you know we talk about this sometimes as trickling down like how does that policy trickle down from the council to the administration to the principals to the teachers and that's i think a very good question hard to answer because i think most teachers may not even be aware, or if they are, they feel the policies perhaps restrain, constrain them or restrict them in some yeah. way. And I think that could be true. I'm not disputing that. But I also think sometimes people don't understand why that policy was created or they don't understand the relevance uh, in their world. And so part of my job is to help empower the teams of people I work with to say, you know, we, we have to, you know, we have to help those teachers understand we're trying to do multiple things in education and we're trying to balance multiple interests. And I, I would say I, I don't so much hear pushback from teachers about policy, but I, I guess because of where I sit and the people I talk with, where I get more pushback actually is from parents. And again, because I think it's, it's fair to say when you look at public education, most people, if they've been through an education system, had an experience, good or bad. And if it was really good for them, they wanted to be like the way they lived. Oh. If it was bad, they want it radically changed. But of it's course. very much anchored in how they experience it. So we often, you know, will hear parents say, Well, I don't I don't want us to be doing that. I want schools to stay the way it was when I went to school. And we say, Well, but things have changed. There are new there's new research or there's new issues or there, you know, we do have to acknowledge, uh, you know, that uh, perhaps students, you know, there's research that shows like having students in rows, doing rote learning, just drills, that's helpful for some skills. But really, if you're trying to develop literacy, you actually need other ways of doing it. Or you maybe need to have uh, arrange your classrooms in such a way that allow students to pick. Do they want to be working standing up? Do they want to work sitting down? And so sometimes, you know, parents will say, but what's the policy on homework? 
And we say, well, it depends on the teacher. She or he can give certain assignments that may seem like homework. Others may not. And, and, and some people would like everything. It's very interesting. It's a big experiment on the human condition because some people want it very prescribed. Should be a homework policy, no more than 10 minutes a day. People who work in the field say, but the 10 minutes, that depends. If you're very capable and you're able to do it in 10 minutes, what you can do in 10 minutes may take that child two hours. So what is the issue? Doing 10 minutes worth of work or doing the assignment? And that's the difficulty sometimes, again, is in defining those terms and trying to help people understand. We're trying to always help students progress and you want as I say, my, my, my interactions are mostly with parents sometimes who don't understand why policies are or aren't a certain way. But I'm sure it's, a, it's applicable to teachers too. Yeah. yeah. I just don't think they see it as policy because they're not operating in that context. Parents tend to be more, well, what are the rules and what's the policy? Teachers are more, I'm here to do my job until usually it's the principal. Someone comes or a parent, someone tells me I can't. Uh, thank you, Sandy, for really ex stating these ideas very well, especially in the context of practice and realities. The examples that you provide are very kind of closely tied to what we see in this context. So it might be a little strange to kind of the final question to kind of relate education to the field of medical science. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to make a point about it. You know, one lesson that we, we can kind of learn from medical science is studying the side effects of things like drugs or medicines. We know that pharmaceutical companies spend millions of dollars on the potential harms of their products every year. So to what extent do you think such a perspective is important and feasible in social and human science? Mm. And where does the responsibility lie in studying the potential harms of policy and reform in education? Well, it's a very interesting example to compare education to medicine, uh, because I think sometimes it is fair to say that sometimes educational practices follow how things are done in medicine. And, and so the example of research is, is, is a very uh, appropriate one. The thing that we have to keep in mind is, uh, and as a psychologist, I feel I have this privileged window in because I'm very aware that there can be, just like in medicine, in education, there can be research that's done under such tightly controlled situations that it allows people to arrive at certain conclusions. So your example of you know a medication, if you take this medication, we've studied it in a blind, random controlled trial, we know it could result in this outcome or that outcome. That's true in, in any field of research. You can have such tight constraints on what you're studying. The problem is as soon as you move it out into an application, and education is really an application of psychology, of learning science, yeah, sociology. You have, sociology, you have so many variables that you can no longer control. And I think it partly explains sometimes why sometimes teachers get a bit frustrated because they'll be told, oh, this new thing is coming. Researchers have found I don't know, you have to teach with red pens instead of blue pens because a study somewhere showed it was the most effective way to give feedback. Yes, but then you have to look and say, well, was this study done with multiple students in multiple contexts? And when you find out sometimes to get to very specific results, it was under such tightly controlled conditions, you can't ever replicate that in an application such as education because you have so many variables. You have students 
different abilities and needs. You have teachers with different styles and, and ways of doing things. So I think we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater because I think the point you're raising is very important that you have to have, and it's the eternal question, how do you measure impact? Because you need to know if your policies are having the intended impact. And if they're having a bad impact, you want to, you want to mitigate that, you want to change it. So I think you have to do research or at least be evidence-based. But I think we have to stop short of thinking that the hard sciences will totally inform us of the way to do things in the more social applied sciences because, because of those differences in conditions. So I think, yes, the, the intent is noble. I think we need to find ways to study impact. But I also think we can't design things to be so rigid that it, it leads us to wrong conclusions because it's very hard to keep track of all the different variables that go into the teaching and learning process. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a kind of a correct perspective, as you mentioned, because the common practice in education has been like this. That, uh, we see the problems and the conflicts in the in our stakeholders and the complex school environment and we develop policies and then if it doesn't work after a couple of years we go and develop another policy right so it has been kind of rarely studied or rarely investigated that what happened to that last policy and what potential harms did it have on those students or teachers that you know so the, the difference between medical science and social science is that the harms take time to show themselves it might really be a couple of years like five years or even a decade and then you will see that there are problems and they have been invisible this whole time so the idea of i mean starting the potential harm because the assumption is that everything has potential harms every idea especially when we you know employ these ideas and on a wider scale like schools on a when we scale up the reform you know geographically or even in a deeper sense of the word that when we talk about reform the common understanding is that we should just move forward however most powerful learnings involve a step backward and then a step forward as it also happens in the organizational sense of the word like how how does you know what sense of learning exists you know at policy level in, the, in those committees at district level how do they learn i think that it happens if there is a step toward studying these potential harms you know a, a failure that is also productive mm -hmm. and a success that can can be counterproductive sometimes mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. yeah and I, I agree with you and you're making me think you know a few years ago i was wondering you know do we need to have a policy and i can't remember the exact example but i called a colleague in another school board and said you've developed the policy what you know what was what was the outcome or how, how successful, what would you recommend? And, and the person said, you know, it's not that the policy was a bad thing, but it was such a, a divisive issue. I think it had to do with same-sex uh, accommodations. And she said it, it, the final result was just so difficult to get to. The policy itself may be great, but she said, I'm not sure that's the best vehicle because we're talking about social change, like talking to elementary age parents about gender diversity, they weren't ready for that. So we were trying to write a policy, but not everyone was seeing the need for it. So it took so much longer and it was so much more like 
protests outside of schools and she just said city if you can avoid all of that like don't do the the policies just at the end you need to do a lot of the talking before you get to striking the policy committee and it was a really good example for me because i i said oh yeah it's true people think that will be the panacea that will be what fixes it and you can actually make a situation worse if yeah. not everyone agrees that that policy was necessary or is going to be, you know, if they think it's detrimental to children, that you're going to get opposition. So, uh, uh, yeah, you've put it very, very well. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. Do you have any final word for the audience who are listening about and who are interested in educational development and, you know, policy aspirations in the future? Mm. I, I guess my parting message would be I really do value the 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 necessity for consultation that you really do need to do those check-ins at the beginning of you know policy development but as you go through the process it really is important to check out with those communities that you're hoping to serve through the policy to make sure that you're on the right track or that there aren't any blind spots so consultation and i mean real consultation not here's 25 pages of something, you read it and tell us if you like it or not. It, it has to be true, meaningful feedbacks for constructive purposes, constructive yeah. consultation.